Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that Tom Hanks and Castaway doesn't want you to hear. It's Monkeys and Playbills! (laughs) (laughs) That feels like a gentle reach, but I'm looking forward to hearing the logic. It was just that, can you imagine, like, Tom Hanks' character from Castaway seeing this musical and being like, (laughs) are you freaking kidding me? That was an option? Like, I was stuck, like, catching fish with a spear and growing a big beard, and I could have been drinking margaritas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. Welcome everyone. I'm Jillian Willems. I'm Paul DeGurse. Welcome to the show where we discuss musicals that have had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway, not counting previews. And what the heck happened? After we announced last episode that we were doing Escape to Margaritaville, we were flooded with emails. People really upset with us. People calling us sellouts, saying we've (laughs) lost our integrity. For those of you who are true purists, you realize... Jimmy Buffett's Escape to Margaritaville ran over 100 performances on Broadway. It sure did. What has become of us? What have we done? So here's here's a little background for all the folks that have been following along since the beginning. I was having this conversation with my partner, Dave Dave David, who's amazing and doesn't listen to this podcast, but said he might make an exception for this episode. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> who's amazing despite not listening to our podcast. Yeah. I would like to chime in. <laughs> Who was that? Is that Producer Daff in the studio with us? Hello. Ooh. <laughs> Hello, Producer Daff. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking with, you were speaking with Dave, Dave, Dave. Yeah. And so Dave, Dave, David suggested something that he called the ones that got away. So we're starting a new miniseries called the ones that got away. Uh-huh. Where every once in a while, we're going to examine a show that ran between 100 and 150 performances on Broadway. Mm-hmm. That just kind of squeaked out of our criteria. But in the interest of making this an entertaining show, first and foremost, we want this to be a show that's interesting to listen to and learn about. We're going to once in a while talk about a show that we think is going to provide a lot of interesting discussion Mm -hmm. and context to the landscape of Broadway in the 90s and 2000s, which is where a lot of our discussion ends up happening. And that's going to lead to a better viewer experience. If you're listening by now... You've already seen on Monkeys and Flaybill's social media channels a very special margarita drink recipe made by the wonderful dear friend of the podcast, Ali Fulmick. Um, both Jill and I are drinking them right now. And yeah, we want we to are. encourage all of our listeners to make these margaritas and take pictures of yourselves enjoying the sun, drinking these margaritas and listening to this episode. Tag us in your photos. Yep. If folks would like to tag us at Monkeys and Playbills Pod on Instagram, and they can also use the hashtag Escape to Monkeyville. <laughs> Escape to Monkeyville! That's what it's gotta be. Shoot us a hashtag. We'd love to see it. No, one more, one more. Broadway is opening back up. Yeah, it is. This is very exciting. Broadway yeah. shows are starting to post reopening. This is incredible news. A couple of, a spe- of special shout outs. Six, featuring dear friend of the podcast, dear personal friend, Winnipegger Andrea Macassette, is going to be um, premiering on Broadway. Also announced um, Paradise Square, a new musical featuring a lot of Canadian friends. I can't wait to talk a lot more about this, presumably, if not on a, if not now, on a future episode when we cover the, whatever, eight hours, 20 <laughs> marathon that's going to be happening in the next little while. That I'm sure we're going to cover. The other thing that's really exciting is we're starting to see more audition notices go out um, nationally here in Canada, as well as specifically in Winnipeg. And it's a very exciting thing. It feels close. I'm trying to manage expectations and be really chill about it. But inside, I'm clapping. 
and I'm standing ovation. Hopefully we're closer rather than further away at this point. So grab your margaritas. Let's get into it. Absolutely. Okay, hit us with some context, Jill. Ooh, here we go. Escape to Margaritaville. <laughs> Sorry. Jimmy Buffett's I'm, Escape yeah, to Margaritaville. I'm laughing also because David couldn't figure out if it was Escape from or to. <laughs> like he couldn't escape from New York? Yeah. <laughs> help, get me out, help. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of, but we'll talk about that after. Oh my god, okay. Jimmy Buffett's Escape to Margaritaville. Previews began at the Marquee Theater on February 16th, 2018. Very recent. Opened on March 15th, 2018, and closed on July 1st, 2018, after 29 previews and 124 performances. Which is, even though it did break 100, that's really not a lot. It's not, no. That's still, you, you call that a flop. I think so. Absolutely. You've got to call that a flop for something that as much time and money and investment went into as friggin' Margaritaville. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Can you try to synopsize? I would love to. It's a dense plot. Like, to be honest, I'm surprised it didn't get nominated for the Pulitzer or something. <laughs> Like, I would compare it to Angels in America in the way that it's put together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like a well-oiled machine. But here, let me give it a try. Let me give it a try. So, we open on an island. I'm pretty sure we open with Jimmy Buffett, I mean, Tully, yep. uh, the, the, right. the hotter, younger Jimmy Buffett, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, doing his thing. And there's, like, the opening number at Marley's um, beachfront cafe. Right, okay. Yeah, because it, it, it starts with a big old dance. It's like an island resort. We open on like an island resort. Yes. There's a bunch of people dancing in kind of casual island wear. Looks very comfortable. I'm sure it was very comfortable to be in this show. Um, <laughs> and we meet we meet uh, the start of our cast of characters. We meet a handsome young man with a guitar and a mop of curly hair. Played by Canadian Paul Nolan. His name is Tully. And he plays guitar and he's a super chill dude. We meet an older man with a big gray beard. Who hangs out on the um, hangs out at the bar all the time? He's just constantly drinking, and he's a super chill dude. Actual Jimmy Buffett. We meet Tully's friend Brick. Brick's his name, right? Yeah, sure is. Yeah, we meet Tully's friend Brick. He's a um, he's a bit of a stocky guy. He's also um, dressed in very comfortable island wear. He's clearly very lovable. Yep. And he's a super chill dude. And we should mention his hair as well. Very nice. Yep, very nice. <laughs> he's a big cutie. Yep. And we meet the the owner of the resort, who's a, a Caribbean woman, mm-hmm. who is maybe a little more uptight. Yeah. Because she keeps on trying to make people work for the jobs that she's paying them to do in this resort. But they're all on island time, so. <laughs> by the standards of this show, she is not super chill. Right. Even though by literally any other standards, she would still be the chillest person imaginable. Exactly. Yeah. I'd love to work for her. <laughs> And those are the those are the island people we meet, right? Paul, how could you forget the star of the show, Jamal? And there's Jamal. We meet Jamal. He's a super chill dude. <laughs> <laughs> so that's them. They this is the staff of this resort where tourists yeah. come to hang out. Um, most of them are like bartenders or um, maitre d's or ballets or whatever. And Tully mm-hmm. plays in the band. The um, the band kind of takes his center upstage. And is also the actual pit orchestra for the show. And they're all dressed as a bar band. 
They've all got their water in beer bottles. I'm not sure if you noticed that, Jill. I did not notice, but that's wonderful. Whenever the band like has to have a water between songs, it looks like they're just taking a swig off a beer, which is very cute. This is Margaritaville. We've met these characters. The whole point of these um, this island lifestyle is they every week new tourists come on through. They show them a good time and send them on their way. Yeah. Um, and we see Tully um, chatting with a, with a young woman who he's had like a romantic affair with for the week. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, are we still going to talk? And Tully's like, you got to be more chill. You got to chill out. We shouldn't <laughs> hang out anymore, man. <laughs> so now we're in Ohio and we meet the rest of our characters. Rachel and Tammy, they live in Ohio. Rachel is very passionate about geology, about uh, innovation. She's trying to create a source of renewable energy. And this is kind of framed as not a great thing. Well, I mean, it's not a bad thing, but it's framed as she's not chill enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Tammy is her best friend. Tammy seems more chill. Tammy seems um, very fun to hang around with. But totally. Tammy's got a fiance who really sucks. Oh, yeah. Fat phobic, one might say. He keeps on trying to get her to um, go on a diet and lose weight for their wedding. But it is worth mentioning that that Tammy is a fat woman and is played, it is cast as a fat woman. And yeah. that is part of that her storyline because as we've learned over the course of broadway (laughs) is that being fat is always inherent to their story which we can get into more when we talk about the book but yeah her fiance not only is fat phobic but is also lazy Mm -hmm. and isn't interested in her or her life or her interests he also hates puns and his name is chad with two d's i know yeah and literally (laughs) hates puns they make a point of saying i hate he hates puns yeah uh, and tammy loves puns oh, so rachel is like i'm gonna take you on a bachelorette party vacation before you get married and it's gonna be just the two of us flying out to this island flying out to margaritaville where we're gonna have a week of like bachelorette party fun but also i'm combining this with a business trip <laughs> because i want to um study a volcano <laughs> on this island because don't forget i'm uptight <laughs> <laughs> So now you've got you've got the whole scene set. This is all the context you need to dive in. They fly to the island and things go about exactly as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Rachel meets Tully, the handsome um, the handsome bar singer, and they don't get along very well because Rachel's too uptight and Tully's a pretty chill dude. Tammy and Brick meet and they have uh, instant chemistry. Yeah. Rachel reveals to Tammy, I don't like your fiance. You should totally cheat on him and hook up with Brick. Which is another problem I don't love. um, Yeah, don't love that either. I don't love being in an unhappy relationship. I also don't love adultery adultery as a concept. Yeah. Hot take from monkeys and playbills. Cheating on your partner is bad. (laughs) You should just break up with them and then maybe do something. Yeah. But Rachel encourages her, you should totally just hook up with Brick. And so that's why when Tully and Brick are like, hey, we should totally drive down to that volcano you want to see, which will be an excuse for us to hook up with you. Mm -hmm. Rachel is like, Totally, because I want Tammy and Brick to get together. Yes. So they drive on down to this volcano that hasn't erupted in a long time. 1964. It hasn't erupted since 1964. Tully's like, oh, the last time it erupted, it buried a whole bunch of insurance salesmen in like a Pompeii type deal. Then they do a whole bit about how Brick is having acid flashbacks to a bunch of all the acid that he dropped back when he was younger. And it's, he reveals that he made it up, but it's about insurance salesmen who got buried by this volcano. Very weird. So th- over the course of being on this volcano, the two couples kind of split off and they both hit it off really well. Brick and Tammy are just getting along like gangbusters. They're really flirting. And Tammy's like, oh, I really shouldn't be flirting. I feel guilty now. And she does a really good thing, which is I have a fiance, by the way. Tammy and Brick are both princes in this play. They are too good for this play. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Tully and Rachel 
um, really, there's not much will they, will they, won't they. Um, Tully teaches Rachel to play guitar, and then, boom, it just happens. Yep. And they're smooching, and they're hooking up. That pretty much takes us to the end of Act 1. We yeah. kind of get to see little glimpses of um, them having a lot of fun on the island over the course of the week. And it's done within, like, one song, right? Like, it sort of jumps in and Absolutely. out of these scenelets to show the passage of time? Yeah, it's like a montage of, like, three or four Jimmy Buffett songs. Because we see them having enjoying the passage of time, and we also get to know a little bit more about this old guy at the bar. Yes. Who wants, doesn't want to do anything but drink. He um, He's a writer, but... Like, he's just writing on napkins, and he's got buried treasure. He keeps on talking about buried treasure. And he keeps on trying to hook up with the uh, owner of the resort. So that takes us to the end of Act 1. Tully and Rachel have, are very involved, and now they're, Rachel and uh, Tammy are getting ready to leave the island. So they say goodbye. Tammy and Brick, they didn't end up hooking up, right? Nope. Nope, they've been very good. There's this whole bit where it's like, every, ta- every day when Tammy walks out, the new drink special is like a drink with a sexy name, yeah. like a sex on a beach or a very, it's a lot. I know so many people who would love that joke. I know. Right? Like my mom. Hi, Jennifer. I know you're listening. Like, I know you would love this musical and I know you would love that joke. And so that takes us to the end of act one. They're gone. Tully's like, oh, I think I actually had feelings for Rachel. Um, but it's okay, I guess that's done now. And then end of act one is a new boat of tourists arrives and everyone's staring off into the distance. That is to say, staring off like above the audience's heads out into the audience and going, oh no! <laughs> like thinking they're seeing something shocking. That's act one. It's almost like, so if you're listening and you're going, this sounds an awful lot like disaster, you would not be wrong. You would not be wrong at all. Also, if you're listening and you thought, I'll bet this looks a lot like Mamma Mia. You would also be right. This show looks, it's like a recycled set from Mamma Mia. Oh, God. Um, so, act two. The, it's revealed that everyone was going, oh, no, because, surprise, surprise, the volcano is starting to smoke. So, JD, the old man, is like, I gotta get me treasure, and runs off. Um, I made him sound like a pirate there. He's not a pirate. That's not a thing. He's piratey. Arr, I've got to get me treasure! And he hobbles off on his peg leg. And he goes, to <laughs> runs towards the volcano to get his treasure. This is where things start to get a little murky, believe it or not, folks. Tully and Brick are like, we've got to go get, go rescue old man JD from the volcano. I think they initially go because Tully thinks there's money there. And he wants yep. the money so he can invest in Rachel's potato science. And, right. And impress her and get her. Yeah. Wasn't enough motivation to save a human life. Yeah, no. Yep. No, no. I need the cash. <laughs> Tammy and Rachel are back in Ohio now. They actually made it. I was so sure they weren't going to be able to get off the island because of the volcano eruption or whatever. I was too. I was surprised they got they got there. The fiancé is still a douchebag. With their engagement TV. Yeah, the fiancé didn't get Chad, didn't get Tammy an engagement ring, got her an engagement TV instead because he's a douchebag. <laughs> so they rescue old man JD and they get his treasure. So they go, and they've got the, um, the, the woman who owns the uh, resort as well is in on this trip. So they've got his treasure, and um, they sit there and they're like, well, let's see what the treasure is. The treasure's just memories. It's just pictures and writing of, like, the, it, the adventures that JD had. Oh, it's so, it's, like, strangely beautiful, that It's moment. absolutely <laughs> strangely <laughs> it's beautiful. Like, what is happening? What play are we watching? They do, do a song going through that. It's really nice. They do a song yeah. going through that. Being like, wow, JD's life was um, really cool and really special. Man, we need to fight for the things that are special. Let's fly this rescue plane all the way to Ohio <laughs> and go um, 
take a stand and profess our love. So presumably this airplane has been grounded for a long time. And it yeah. just happened to have a full tank of gas and be fully operational and ready yeah. to fly. Like, that's brilliant. Like, fly over, like, a transatlantic flight or whatever. Yeah. Which is with a pilot who is a notorious alcoholic who probably hasn't flown in years. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. So they get to Ohio. We're about middle of Act 2 now. They get to Ohio. They get to a bar where Tammy is having her rehearsal dinner. And her fiancé is like, hey, everyone, we have a pile of cheeseburgers for everyone to eat for the rehearsal dinner. Except for you, Tammy. You're too fat. We have vegan Italian food for you. Oh, God. Um, Fat-free, buckwheat, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I would just like to say, as a vegan, like, what, what, why we gotta make that, like, a thing? Like, yeah. why can't it be that, like, Tammy gets to have cheeseburgers and, hey, we thought of you people with dietary restrictions. Over there is this equally delicious thing of bulgur yeah. and Italian food. Come yeah. on, man. I know. Absolutely. And, like, you can have, you can have it all. That is the thing that I am learning yeah. in my life <laughs> that no one told me in musicals. You can have the burgers and the vegan pasta. Cheeseburger good, vegan bad. Like, yeah. It's just, it's a cheap joke. Especially because it's obviously just leading up to one of Jimmy Buffett's most famous songs, Cheeseburger in Paradise, <laughs> where um, <laughs> Tully and Brick arrive at the bar. Brick sweeps Tammy off her feet oh. and they, um, they love the cheeseburgers together. And then from there, Chad get out of here. Tammy and Brick are a thing now. And yeah. they're in love, true love. And they head off. Yeah. While we're at the bar, Tully does a song with the bar band. An agent, a music agent sees him and is like, I want to make you famous. You're so good. And then this is where things get weird, folks, because then Tully signs on. Tully and Rachel don't get together. And then we start to time hop like a lot. Another montage. We jump like a year in the future. And Tully's now a famous recording artist. Mm-hmm. I think it goes incrementally. It's like, oh, he's yeah. like a... Uh, him in the studio and then him yeah. a year later. Yeah. Yeah. You can kind of plot it by um, uh, Tammy's sudden pregnancy where it's like. Yes. Because yes. like it goes from like her saying, hey, by the way, me and Brick, totally a thing. And now we've got a kid on the way to sure. behold my child. Crying baby. Yeah. yeah. And I'll be honest. This is where I started to kind of lose track because up till now, Brick and Tammy, who are both very charming, kind of gave a um, like an anchor for me to be interested in. Mm-hmm. And right. then once they, they kind of wrap up their story halfway through Act 2 and move on. And I started to lose interest a lot without those characters in play. Yeah. Tully and Rachel get back together or they meet somewhere. They they meet back in Margaritaville and they meet and they're like, oh, we should give this um, we should give this another try. And then they're together. Then we time, scump, time skip another year yeah. where Brick and Tammy get an invitation to their wedding on Margaritaville. And that's how we end the show. With um, everyone on the Margaritaville Island celebrating their wedding together. So that's Jimmy Buffett's Escape to Margaritaville. Woof. So I had a really hard time tracking down a concise synopsis. So what I found on Wikipedia was as close as we're going to get. And here it is. Escape to Margaritaville is a musical that was first performed in 2017, featuring Jimmy Buffett's songs. The plot revolves around a part-time bartender and a singer who falls for a career-minded tourist. Yeah, okay. So this is fascinating as well. This is a fascinating musical because it was kind of spearheaded by Jimmy Buffett, who's a very fascinating man. So freaking fascinating. And I want to hear you tell me about him. <laughs> I'm not a parrot head. No, nor am I. You know, uh, anyone who knows me well knows I do enjoy occasionally having a few drinks or um, smoking some pot, which I can say because it's legal in Canada, so yep. no shame in that. And <laughs> sitting out in the sun and kind of living... 
enjoying that lifestyle for a little while. His music's never super duper appealed to me. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating about him is he promotes, he's made a whole career out of promoting this lifestyle. This lifestyle of island time, no worries, drink and smoke your day away all day. He's, mo- he's monetized it, but even more than that, he's very corporate. He's made a few like chain restaurants. Yeah, Two, I think. He's got a, like, a, like a brand of liquor and a brand of marijuana that he, um, that he sells. And just in general, has really done a fantastic job of making a lot, a lot of money. He's an incredibly rich man, making a lot of money off a philosophy that encourages, hey, maybe don't work so hard. Am I correct in assuming that Jimmy Buffett's fame wasn't actually attributed necessarily to his music, but to like what he represented? I'd say that's a strong possibility. I mean, it's not bad. It's not bad music. No, no. I just mean in terms of popularity, I don't actually think he ever had like a number one single. I believe the only one he had was, um, was Margaritaville. Yes. And I think that in terms of his discography, that's actually really interesting. He's as successful as like the friggin' Rolling Stones or something. Right. <laughs> a lot of people would be very hard-pressed to um, to name five Jimmy Buffett songs. Oh, totally. It's also very fascinating because this isn't Jimmy Buffett's first attempt to find his way into the theater sector. Wait, what? First of all, he'd been approached by, um, by James Niederlander himself one of the most um, powerful Broadway producers and impresarios about doing like a one-man Springsteen-style show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so shocked. So apparently he thought about that, didn't do, um, didn't do that. Oh, that would have been huge. Right? Yeah. So it would in the late 80s? Late 80s, yeah, totally. Oh my God. That would have been unlike anything that was happening really at the time. Like we were just starting to see the one person, you know, famous people shows. Yeah. So also, in 1997, he tried to be a part of a show. Apparently it was a musical based on an author who I've never heard of. His 1965 novel, Don't Stop the Carnival, was adapted into a musical, which included, um, Jimmy Buffett even wrote some songs for it. But then it didn't, it didn't make it past, um, out-of-town tryouts in Miami. See, that's funny to me, because Miami is such a different audience than New York. So, like... If it doesn't make it past out-of-town tryouts in Miami, that doesn't actually mean anything. Like, it might have been a hit in New York. Absolutely. Because we're seeing geographically, like, how different these audiences are. If you look at something like Frank Wildhorn's Wonderland, which we'll talk about someday on this podcast, that tried out in Florida. And it crushed there. It did so well. (laughs) And man, New York did not like it. Yeah. So that's Jimmy Buffett. This is Jimmy Buffett's kind of third kick at the can of um, having musical theater be a part of his portfolio, basically. You know what I mean? That's just so adorable. And this whole musical is very much about (laughs) continuing that Jimmy Buffett brand. So I sent um, both producer Daphne and Paul a picture of a a thing that I found about Jimmy Buffett, which was that his (laughs) net worth last year was $600 million and that his holding company is called Cheeseburger. (laughs) So funny. Like, could you imagine being so rich that, that you can get away with naming your holding company cheeseburger holding company llc like i can't what a joke i love it and it's worth saying there's no no shade towards jimmy buffett here oh zero there's just admiration honestly that's an incredible career and he's an incredibly savvy businessman Mm -hmm. it's just i find it so fascinating that the, the persona he's chosen to monetize yeah is like the old man who just sits at a bar in an island and drinks well, thank you for that info on Jimmy Buffett. I had no idea he had a, a previous relationship to Broadway. All I oh, all yeah. I know is in terms of this show history that it took about five years to get Margaritaville to Broadway. Should we talk a little bit about how? I, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so as we've seen before, there's a lot of productions that start um, at the La Jolla Playhouse with Christopher Ashley, our artistic director. Yep. Just an incredible force for good in the worldwide theater community. Yeah. They do amazing work there and they are the catalyst for a lot of really successful shows and some not. And that's just yep. the, the, the thing. That's the nature Absolutely. of this business. Um, so in 2017, from May to July, so two month run where they, I guess, originally put it on its feet um, at La Jolla. And then later that year, so late in 2017, they did a quick, like a week long run in New Orleans. Then they did yeah. another like couple days in Houston. And then they did two more months in Chicago. And this would have been considered their like tryout run. Really trying to get the perspective of a lot of different audiences. Yes, which I think is so smart. That's I very think fascinating. That's a really great move. If you can afford to move your show around and try it, why not? I was going to say, it's probably not cheap. Well, no, I, I would imagine it wouldn't be. Okay, so they were in Chicago for a month in late 2017. Sure. And so keep in mind, they opened um, on Broadway in like early-ish 2018. So it's a quick turnaround as well. Yeah, totally. Not much time to rewrite or um, redo anything if it's not working. From what I gathered, the team stayed the same. The only thing is that two of the actors from the La Jolla production did not join um, the Broadway cast. Well, let's get into what on earth is going on with this show. What the heck happened? I think this show, more mm -hmm. than uh, more than anything, um, can really be defined by our, um, our ethos, what the heck happened. All right, should we get into the book? I would love to. So the book is by Greg Garcia and Mike O'Malley. So Greg Garcia, as I guess Paul knows... Um, I didn't because I'm not a sitcom person, but yeah. Greg Garcia is a sitcom creator, writer, producer from notably My Name is Earl and I believe Raising Hope. I believe as so well. as well. Yep. Two, um, two shows that have a lot of charm, a lot of really nice stuff, or at least to mm -hmm. me. I really like parts of both My Name is Earl and Raising Hope. Um, and then Mike O'Malley is one of those actors and writers, I guess, yep. who um, you wouldn't necessarily know their name, but then when you see their face, you're like, oh, it's him. So Mike O'Malley, um, you would know him because he was on My Name is Earl, and he's also on The Good Place. He plays the doorman. Right. And then he also wrote for the first, like, three seasons of Shameless. Yes. So, like, a really accomplished writer, performer. Also works, uh, works a lot in TV, eh? Yes, tons yeah. of TV. So people involved in writing this book who are, um... Who are punching at a high level, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. These are people who are, um, you know, working on major network shows or show running. Jimmy Buffett, that's because he's a smart businessman. I can't fault those choices. I don't think I can either. However, it might have been beneficial to have a person who is familiar with, like, theatrical devices. Yeah. Because it it is really sitcom-y. Like, Ooh. all the jokes, the way they fire and their setups are hilariously bad for theater and yeah. like probably pretty good for TV. Absolutely. I <laughs> I could not agree more. There's mm -hmm. like this is this book is a joke a minute. The kind of pace that you try to keep on a sitcom where you can't go more than what's the the rule that they use more than like 20 seconds without a joke? Something absurdly small like that where the current fashion in sitcoms is like try not to go more than 20 seconds without a joke of some kind. I can't get yeah. behind that. And it's when, when you watch sitcoms, especially <laughs> sitcoms created in the 2000s, that's the way it plays. 
that totally is. I just think is, of yeah. like Two and a Half Men. I don't exactly know why. That. I think yeah. that's the only like sitcom yeah. that I have really any yeah memory of. Yeah. And I didn't even really watch that much of it. So the book plays like that, but man, that's tougher in theater. You know what I mean? You don't yes. have the kind of the quick, the ability to quick cut the way you do in TV to keep momentum yes. going. So it's just totally. every 20 seconds there's a joke and the actors actually have to pause for laughter. We're stopped dead in our tracks every 20 seconds. The other thing that we don't have the luxury of in a theater is um, camera focus. Exactly. If a joke's going to play, like I want to know where I'm looking. And if it's set up properly in theater with a nice minute and a half setup or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I know where I'm looking for that punchline. Yeah. Whereas in this play, it was sort of like, wait, who sa- who said that? Absolutely. Or where is that coming from? Yeah. So that made it kind of difficult to follow the the jokes. I I, I, I experienced that as well. That was uh, that was my experience. This book also does a um, uses a convention where it um, breaks the fourth wall pretty consistently. Oh yeah, that. Like um, <laughs> actor characters are pretty consistently addressing the audience, usually just, and it's almost always just kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Can you believe this? Right. Can you believe I have to put up with this? Oh my god. Or what about that Buffett buffet joke? <laughs> so this is this is a very more that I like to think of this this is a more of a conceptual thing with the show where Tully is clearly supposed to be like a Jimmy Buffett stand-in. And he becomes a famous artist recording Jimmy Buffett songs. Mm-hmm. But they're his own original songs in this world. Um, so we're like, we have to conclude that Jimmy Buffett doesn't exist in this universe. I suppose we have to. That's so sad. But they make this joke of like. Oh, I was going to go get some food at the buffet. Don't you mean the buffet? No, that's the singer. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so I guess we assume silly. there is a singer named Jimmy Buffet in this Right, world. but there's no Jimmy Buffett in existence. <laughs> there's no Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett is Tully. And Buffett is actually just a platter of food. A way of dining. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very confusing. It's very bizarre. Yeah. What do you, do you like this book, Jill? No, I don't. I'm sorry. I, I just... I, like, it's not my style. I'm, I don't really think it works, like, for Broadway, I guess. Like, I think it might work in a, another way. Like, definitely get butts in seats and it would be, like, silly, f- yeah, summer fun. Or, or it actually could work really well as a resort show. Absolutely, it could. Or a cruise ship show. Go to Margaritaville and you're like, oh, we're going to put on a 90 minute version of Escape to Margaritaville. Like, that would be, I would go, I would do it. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm so fine to admit that that's what this is. Hell yeah. And it's not, that it's not for me. But yeah. I know there's a lot of people that it's for. I think that unlike Mamma Mia, and I, we can maybe draw these comparisons a lot because I think Mamma Mia is a jukebox musical that really works. There's no question about I that. love it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. The overreaching problem with this book and this story is that there's not really any significant stakes the whole time. Mm, yeah. Nothing ever happens. If we're going to compare to Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia, the, the problem, the big overreaching problem is very well known. Oh, we've got three dads here, three men who I've had very complicated relationships with in my life. Yeah. And now without knowing it, they're all here just before my daughter's wedding. What a nightmare. This musical, the stakes are Rachel has to chill out. Tammy's horny, but cheating is bad. <laughs> You know what oh, I mean? Like, God. yeah. JD, the old man, might die in a volcano, but don't worry, we solved that really quickly. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. We never yeah. sit in anything long enough for it to be for it to be a real conflict. Like, and even Rachel and Tully never really have a fight or anything, do they? No, they only really just disagree. Yeah, and then they kind of agree. Oh, you know what? Maybe it wouldn't work out for us to date. Maybe this was just a fling. And you're like, all right, that's good for you. Like, that's in real life, I'd right. be happy for you. In terms of this musical, what? Who cares? <laughs> so the other thing we touched on earlier that I think is a 
a big problem with like Broadway and not necessarily this musical, but this musical is a good example of it is the portrayal of fat people on Broadway. I think it's really frustrating when like fat people are hired to be on Broadway, but only because the character is written to be like on a diet or like there are specific things written in to make them a fat person. It's not like, oh, they are just being played by like a fat person. So that's something that I really struggled with watching this show. Absolutely. And it is only, what, three three years old? Absolutely. This is as contemporary as it gets, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's really, um, it's tough to see, like, that even only three years ago, we were still working with that as, like, a convention for fat people. Like, because why couldn't a scientist be fat? It's like, Absolutely. yeah, it's just yeah. the question that comes up for me. And it's not necessarily, like, in this situation, it's completely a script thing. But in some situations, it's just a casting thing. I could not, I could not agree more, especially in this situation. Like you said, it's endemic of the book, right? It's, mm, this is built into yeah. the book. There's a better way you could have done this, especially. And maybe, once again, it's coming from a sitcom background as well, where sitcoms still have a tough time wrapping their head around this. Like, up until when did Mike and Molly end? You know what I mean? There's that show where the whole bit was, uh, they're fat, but they're in love. Right, right. Oh, that's the other thing. Like, terrible The two concept. fat people yeah. have to fall in love with each other. Yeah, That's the exactly. other thing, yeah. like, in this scenario that's just sort of like, that's not inaccurate of life. You know, fat people love fat people, but also yeah. skinny people love fat people. Absolutely, so absolutely. Why, does th- why do the funny people have to be the fat ones? I don't know. Anyway, it's just a whole, obviously, I have so many feelings Absolutely, it, but... <laughs> the valid feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, you're right. I think it's a sitcom byproduct, too, in this situation. So, that's (laughs) the book. (laughs) That's the book, everybody. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So then out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys would you give the book? I would give the book four. Yeah. People said lines. People said lines. Some of the lines were funny. There was a beginning, middle, and end. There were some jokes that made me laugh. Yeah, there were a couple, like, giggles. There was many more jokes that made me kind of roll my eyes. Yep. Oh, the one last thing. Because I'm going to go lower. I'm going to say three. I'm going to de- okay. agree with your four and deduct one because this book has some of the most egregious. And now we're going to lead into a song. Oh, sure. Yeah. Writing okay. that I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. Like the setups. Like the setups into songs are just a disaster. Yeah. I would like to give a special shout out to the lost shaker of salt. <laughs> So yeah. just 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 for a little bit of context here, JD, the old man with an eye patch, has been wandering around getting mad at random guests at the hotel for supposedly stealing his shaker of salt. It's an ongoing bit. He's like, "Where's my salt?" And Marley is like, "Here it is." And so Catlet like it, in the middle of this song, it's coming. Here it comes. He just comes in going searching for my Lost shaker or assault. And this was around the point that me, friend of the podcast, Ali Fulmick, and Paul all collectively threw our hands up in the air and shouted yeah. shouted obscenities at the screen. They've oh, really God. blatantly spent the whole first act setting up this bit just so they can justify this one line in um, Wasting Away in Margaritaville. Yeah. And yeah. that actually happens a few times, like in yeah. different ways through the show. Absolutely. So yeah, but that's the most obvious for sure. Yeah. Um, so that's your deduction. That's where you're. That's my. That's my deduction. Taking that's your point from. Be be better than that. And once again, maybe if you had a writer who was more familiar with theater conventions, I'm sure that was very. If I had to 
hypothesize wildly that was really charming to sitcom writers who haven't really written for theater before. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Really, it's just, no, we can do better. We're better than that now. Come on. This is good because we're getting into the music. Right. I like the song. I like the lyrical content has a lot of good. It's kind of silly, you know what I mean? But, and instead of actually playing that for some kind of um, emotional pathos, they make it a joke and it's not a joke that I like. So I got frustrated. Good. Yeah. Well, then let's get into the music if we're like kind of there. Let's get into the music. Yes. Okay. Music by Jimmy Buffett. Lyrics by Jimmy Buffett. And then there were a bunch of other credits because in pop music, there are usually a lot of contributors to the music and they need to be credited. So... Please go to ibdb.com, look up Margaritaville, and then you'll have your whole list of folks who contributed over the decades <laughs> to this music. I believe it's almost all either songs that were released by Jimmy Buffett or that Jimmy Buffett had a hand in. Yes. And there's one or two songs that are that Jimmy Buffett did not have a hand in, but are from frequent collaborators who are writing in the same style around the same time. Cool. Music orchestrated by Michael Utley. Vocal and incidental music arranger was Christopher Janke. Very busy arranger, by the way. Dance arrangements by Gary Adler, and then the additional orchestrations by Christopher Janke as well. He did the um, the arrangements for both the um, the Porgy and Bess revival. Oh, and the um, the uh, the most recently Miz revival. Very, uh, which are both real, real nice. Mm -hmm. You know, I I kind of like Jimmy Buffett music. I do too. I didn't think I did, but there's a lot of nice stuff here. It's fun to fun to listen to. It's not super my era or my cup of tea. I've been singing the songs since I um since I listened. Um, just walking around going. It's five o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Pour me something tall and <laughs> yeah. strong. Like, I, something comes yeah. over me yeah. when I hear his music. <laughs> I think I that's, don't know. <laughs> that's inherent in us as white people, Jill. <laughs> that's oh, that's something a good that point. happens. <laughs> yeah, so with that said, mm-hmm. I like the music. And you know, honestly... Some of the songs functioned a lot better as musical theater songs than I was expecting. A lot of I them could did. not agree more. Yeah. <laughs> like, the fact that they were singing It's Five O'Clock Somewhere with so much vibrato, I was like, it's this makes goofy. me happy. It's, yeah, it's so good. Yeah. So the song, I just want to say, there's one song in there that made my heart burst. Yes. It's called It's My Job. It's early in the show. But I was like, I think I'm going to put that in my book. Absolutely. Like if someone requests like a country song for an audition, like it's going yeah. in my book. Or just like use it as pop song in general. Yeah. That's always, that always drives people crazy finding the pop song. Totally. But it's like, oh, it's so good. I really like Son of a Son of a Sailor as well. It's a, that's a beautiful song. I just didn't love how it, how they did it in the show. No, I can agree with that. I like doing the soundtrack listen. I was like, what yeah. a nice song this is. Oh, yeah. And then it didn't connect as much. So Paul Alexander Nolan, who plays Tully, when they're singing It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, and they get to that line, yep. and he jumps up the octave oh, to sing yeah. it, I was like, I hope every time he sings it, he goes up another octave. So he starts, it's five, five o'clock, o'clock somewhere. somewhere. It's, it's five, five o'clock, o'clock somewhere. somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted it to get higher and higher. Because he, it sounds like he could sing so high. So I was like, when are we going to, can we hear the limit? And he's got an absurd voice. We'll talk about him in a bit. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. So musically, I actually don't yeah. have a lot of complaints. I might no, say that there were maybe just a few too many songs. Yeah. Especially in Act 2. Yeah. Act 2 gets a little bit draggy. 
mm-hmm. and there's a couple songs here that we could ditch. Yeah. In general, the Jimmy Buffett's tunes aren't quite as charming when we're not on the island. Good point. Yes. In Act 1, when we're all on the island, I'm just having a ball. Yep. Because you're in the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle. Exactly. But when we go back when we go back to Ohio, there's this chunk where like Cheeseburger in Paradise doesn't land quite as well as you would want it to for such a big hit. Yes. And that kind of lasts until pretty much the end of the show. Totally. So I don't actually have much much else to say about the music, but Jesse Green from the New York Times, like he yes. didn't necessarily call out the music, but he called out like the general ambiance of the show. Um, and he, he wrote, quote, if ever there were a time to be drunk in the theater, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's a double entendre in the sense that I think he meant it as like, you need to be drunk to watch this show, but also you could be drunk and have a, a fun time watching this show. Like Absolutely. it could be either. I would agree with both. I would say that um, at some level of intoxication is the perfect way to experience this show. Yeah. Absolutely. I think so too. Out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys are you giving this music, Paul? Like eight. I know. I would agree. (laughs) An eight. And I also kind of liked the arrangements. Like, I I actually thought the arrangements were very sensible. I take no issue with the I don't really have a lot of complaints. Lots of good. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. I can't believe, I can't believe it. Yeah, that's... Look at us. If you had asked me to predict my ratings beforehand, I didn't expect it to be that high. I I did not either. So there you go. Something just pokes my brain in the right way. Absolutely. Should we talk about the direction and choreo? I'm so excited to. Directed by Christopher Ashley from, as aforementioned, La Jolla Playhouse AD, and a director extraordinaire from, what what has he done? Come From Away. Come From Away is the one who won the Tony for. Choreographed by Kelly Devine, also a La Jolla affiliate yep. and Come From Away choreographer. And a couple of other credits, I believe Diana as well, which is supposed to open like any time. Yeah, it's coming in back in the, the the reopening wave. I had purposely been avoiding this conversation about about the music direction. Yes. Because there is no specific music director listed. And I wondered about that. So I'll read out a few folks that I thought maybe would have contributed in that capacity. And then Paul, maybe you could help me understand what... The, the difference between those roles would be? It's a bit of a boring semantics thing, but I'll, I'll be okay. happy to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a musical supervisor, yeah. Christopher Janke, who had, had um, done some of the arrangements. And then we have a musical coordinator, sorry, two of them, the two Michaels, Michael Keller and Michael Ahrens. And then we also have a music consultant, Mac McAnally. So those were the three, yeah, the three I could find. Here's what this is. A musical supervisor is very similar to a music director. Okay. But what it means is that you can also be attached to other versions of this production without having to conduct it necessarily. Oh. So in the case of um, of this show, you would conduct the Broadway production and then you would essentially music direct or co-music direct the a tour or a Toronto oh, sure. production or a West End okay. production with the music director who's actually going to sit down and conduct the show. Gotcha. Musical coordination is mostly hiring, putting together um, putting together musicians, putting together um, arrangements, clearing rights, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, musical consultation 
is a catch-all for you came in and um, helped out and did some work. Got it. And we're not sure what that was. So it's hard to say what that musical consultation role was, but it was something. So safe to say that, for example, maybe Jimmy Buffett was actually in rehearsals. At least at some point, yep. Christopher Janke would have been the person to teach the cast as the musical supervisor would have probably been what what I would imagine as a music director. Teach the cast, work out how the music is going to interact with the rest of the creative team's vision. Right. Um, work out how to um, get the get the band and whatever other other music is happening through that process as well. Doing exactly that, leading the music department. Great. That's yeah. helpful. Thank you. Yeah. So in terms of direction, how did you feel, Paul? I thought there was some fun stuff. I like Christopher Ashley direction. There's I do a lot too. Of fun. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a fan of his work. I find it really seamless. Like I find it, I love, you know this about me, but I love when like an ensemble is a part of each moment in the play. And I feel like in this play, like all the transitions were really well thought out and the ensemble really like actively participated in in Absolutely. moving things around and dancing through and moving through stuff. And I appreciate that a lot. I agree. I could not agree more. I think that I admire Christopher Ashley and I admire people like him, including probably you, Jill, to be honest, who understand live performance and its nature on its own so well. Mm-hmm. Like Come From Away is a great example of that. And it's such a well-deserved Tony. And an example of that here where he does this is the bit where um, Tully and Rachel are playing guitar together. Yep. And Tully's um, fretting is doing the chords and Rachel's strumming. It's such a simple thing, mm-hmm. but it's so charming to watch that live. Yeah, I'm I'm a fan. And honestly, like, the more that I watch Christopher Ashley's work, the more I'm like, I would love to just, like, assist him, <laughs> you know? Like, I'd love to just watch that process, you know? Just an incredible director. And I think, I feel like we get a chance to see a lot of his work because he, especially on this podcast, because he's dedicated himself to new work. Yes. To shepherding new work onto um, onto Broadway in his role as La, Jolla, La Jolla's artistic director. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun stuff with space as well. This is also similar to Come From Away, like when we're in the cockpit of the plane. And we oh, see we're yeah. like looking into the cockpit. And then we flip around to Tully and Brick in the back of the plane. Mm-hmm. All these simple tricks that are just like, you don't need to be, you don't need millions of dollars of a budget. Nope. To... Just be charming. He's such a charming director who understands the nuances of live so well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I loved it. Okay, what about the choreo? <laughs> I want you to talk about the choreo Okay, first. I will. So at first, <laughs> at first I was like, oh, this is fun. This is good. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. this is accessible. Look at that. And then it was <laughs> like, oh my God, there's an act two tap number hallucination act number. two soft shoe act, right act two soft shoe and it's a dream ballet it's an acid flashback ballet <laughs> oh. oh monkeys and playbills bingo y'all there yeah. we go <laughs> there, it is. there it is yeah um and then i was like oh i didn't like the cheeseburger number at all and then i was like oh no the bows like it just i felt a little ripped off in that i was like Oh, based on the opening number, if there if it lives in this world for this play, like I'm going to be so into this. But I just felt a little repetitive and then it felt tired, I think, by the end. Yeah, I agree completely. It felt like they didn't have as many stops as you would expect to pull out. Yeah. Like when you get to the opening, you expect like, oh, that was really good. And that was probably about like 70% of what we're going to get. But that was 100% off the top. Yep. You'd want them to save... To go 70% or so, and then when you hit Cheeseburger in Act 2, one of the biggest Jimmy Buffett songs, Act 2, we're about 11 o'clock number-ish territory. Yep. Let's hit 100%. Ugh. 
And it yeah. was not. It and was, it never. Got and it was there. nice. It was fine. But yeah. Yeah. So I was a little disappointed, and and I don't know who to necessarily attribute that to because it could have to do with Christopher Ashley's vision of what each number should have been. Because I don't know. Like I like to to hear from the director about what what they want for each number, and if yeah. they want a specific thing, and maybe you don't agree with it, like. You have to collaborate. That's just the nature of it, right? So maybe there was a bit more collaboration. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough to say, but I just felt like it kind of fell off in Act 2. I will will give an honorable mention. There's one moment where they're they're flying. They're flying the seaplane with a limited tank of gas. And there's um, ensemble members dressed as clouds. Okay, yeah. And just these absurd (laughs) cloud costumes. They're the funniest things I've ever seen. And they're doing like cloud choreo. Yeah, they're like plieing, and and <laughs> when they when they plie, the cloud sort of bounces because it's like heavy. It's like exactly. a hoop skirt, but it's a cloud, so it's it bounces, so it ricochets. Yeah, it's so it's that is funny. So Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, so I liked that. Um, I feel the exact same way as you. I we started the show, and I was like, "Here we are on the island." Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah. And like, and that was it. Yep. That was it. Is the is this also the place to mention that? Um, Tammy flies from the vegan um, this is- from the vegan buffet over to the cheeseburgers. <laughs> I think you mean the vegan buffet, and yes, she yeah, the vegan fly. buffet. <laughs> so, uh. listeners, Tammy, the character, is at the vegan buffet. She's so disappointed because <laughs> vegan food is gross. Untrue, but this is um, the world that we live in. All of a sudden, she's flown. She goes up in the air and flies from the vegan buffet over <laughs> to the cheeseburger buffet, and. I thought that was funny. That was the best part of the number. That was funny. Yeah, I quite enjoyed that. I love a surprise, like, flying moment. Yeah. So, out of... Let's do them both separately. Okay, that's a good idea. Out of ten playbills, how many monkeys would you give Chris Ashley's direction? I think an eight. Yeah, absolutely. I say eight as well. Cue the agreement music. We just agreed. <laughs> eight is great. Okay, so what about Kelly Devine's choreography? Like, Six. Boom! I think so too. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of a lot of functionality. Yeah. It's not bad, but I wish they had saved some. Oh my god. I just remembered the Okay, I just remembered the move. Pick up this <laughs> to left, this to right. Oh, the shark thing. Listeners at home. Um Jill is doing is pressing her hands together like she's praying, but they go over her head and shake yeah. right. Then they shake left. And this is a move that they use. Both in the um, one of the opening numbers, Chad's douchebaggy friends sing this song, and then it's the bows as well. It's the bows. It's this shark fin move where you're shark fin right, then shark, shark fin, fin left. left. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to call that out because, like, obviously I remembered that that happened, so that's a good thing. Yep. When the choreographer can lock into something like that. But I, I also just think that some of the moves got repetitive. I couldn't agree more. So that's the direction in choreo. Ooh, design. What about the design? Scenic design by Walt Spangler, who we just talked about from Tuck Everlasting. Welcome back, Walt. Costume design by Paul Tazewell. Oh, you know, in the Heights, Hamilton, on the town, 1998. Like, just so incredibly busy and accomplished. Why is he doing Margaritaville? We've got lighting design by... Probably the most famous, busiest 
lighting designer of all time, Howell Binkley. Very cool. Whose first credit on Broadway was Kiss of the Spider Woman. Fascinating. And then who also did um, Parade and Hamilton. So just so accomplished. This is the Hamilton design team, basically. Like, it's wild. That's really cool. Um, Sound design by Brian Ronan. Welcome back. Hair, wig, and makeup design by Leah J. Lucas, who is, I think, probably the busiest uh, hair, wig, and makeup designer that we will talk about. Um, She has done Memphis, American Idiot, Natasha Pierre. The list goes on. That's a lot of good shows. So many good shows. So, yeah. They got a good team put together here. Like, I don't even want to know how many credits they have combined. Right, yeah. Like a thousand? I don't know. There's a lot to like in this design. It's not, this is not a flashy, flashy design. I think there's a lot of things done right. I think, um, and I think that some of the things that are frustrating can't be helped. Ooh, like what? Well, like, so I think of like, the, 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 one of the big sets we play on is this, um, this beach bar. Mm-hmm. And I see that set and I'm like, so it's literally Mamma Mia. But like, the, like, I can't fault anyone for that. You know what I mean? They did the job and they did the job well. Mm-hmm. And you know, the bar, when they get to the bar in act two, the Ohio bar, there's a lot of nice variety. This is very much different from the um, from the tropical bar. And it really looked like a bar. Like it looked like a place that I imagine that Chad would have his rehearsal dinner. Absolutely. I would say <laughs> almost to the detriment of the show, it looked so much like an Ohio bar that I was like, oh, we're done with fun in the sun? Mm, yeah. Oh, no, now we're in Ohio. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no offense to Ohio. I'm sure Ohio's beautiful. I've never been there. So, Paul... There was one, th- I don't know if you noticed this, all the women were wearing heels, pretty much. Like, I would say 60 to 80% of the costumes, like of the footwear for the women, were like a wedge or a character shoe. I was going to say, so you can clarify this for me, because I'm not, as um, as a person who doesn't necessarily wear heels, like yeah. some of our viewer base at least, I'm sure, there's character shoe, which mm-hmm. has a heel, but yep. is relatively easy to move around in still, right? That's what they're built for. Yeah, they're built for that. Yeah. Like they're, from what I understand, they're comfy. You can dance in them just fine. Yeah. And then if you get higher than a character shoe, then we're starting to talk like this is going to be uncomfortable to wear for a long period of time. Yeah. Like there's there's still ways to wear like a, there's like ballroom shoes as well, which are a little more like a skinnier heel, sometimes even an, a higher heel, depending, that you can right. still dance in. But what confused me was like... Presumably, they're on a beach right now. Right. (laughs) Well, I've been in a wedding outside (laughs) in heels where my heels like sunk into the grass. So you can buy these little like heel stoppers or whatever, like that stop you from sinking into the grass. But I just kept thinking, looking at like a wedge and looking at like a, a heel going, if I was in the sand, I wouldn't be able to do any partner work. Like... It just wouldn't work. So so what should they have worn? Like, because typically you'd be wearing like freaking flip-flops, but you can't dance in that. So I love dancing in bare feet. I know you do. And I encourage it in most people whenever I can. But I think they should have either been barefoot. And then some some of the dancers were wearing like a ked or like some sort of like a tennis shoe, which I thought was more appropriate for sure. So if we're not doing bare feet, we should be in a ked. And then I thought, okay, maybe the reason they can't do bare feet is because, like, all the tracks in the floor 
because there's a ton of set pieces. Most of the a bunch of the scenery moves on tracks. Yep. Yes, it does. Yep. So don't, that that makes that makes good sense. That's that would be a safety hazard. Yeah. So so I felt a little bad being mad about the wedges and stuff and heels. No, it's got to be kids then. But I really, yeah, strongly felt that. I know it seems so trivial to call attention to that, but it just it really got to me. A few things to mention. A few honorable mentions. Honorable honorable mentions, and I'm going to toss it to producer Daph, who I know has an opinion on Lisa Howard's costume design. There was one moment where Lisa Howard, who plays Tammy, was in like a um, like a sarong or something, mm-hmm. and she had like makeup tan lines of like a bikini top, and I thought that was a nice touch. I didn't notice that. Yeah, it was really good. Good for them. Some real nice attention to detail, and there's a um, they do some real smart cook changes at the top of Act Two. Good work, um, stage management team. Oh, good. Some really smart, really smart quick changes. Honorable mention. Yay. Producer Daphne, how do you feel about Lisa Howard who plays Tammy's costume design? Yeah, tell us. So my honest impression when she first walked out with the combination of what she was wearing, which was this kind of bright floral patterned shirt over capris and this short blonde bob... It took me a solid couple of musical numbers to realize this was supposed to be Alison Luff's friend of the same age. Right. She was so heavily coded as being older from her, like, her haircut to what they dressed her in. Like, even at her own engagement party, she was dressed like very mother of the bride. Oh, yeah, that's so true. It was very unflattering, and it aged her so mm-hmm. much. And I know that Lisa Howard is, a, like, 10 years older than Alison Love. Yeah. But that costume design just made her look like Alison's mom, and it was so not flattering. And, like... It doesn't have to be. Like, this is a plus-size woman going to the beach, going to a tropical vacation. Put her in a fucking bikini, you cowards. Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah. Seriously. Damn right. Damn right. Yeah. 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 So that was my my mini rant. Yeah. I agree so much. That's a great point. Yeah. If we believe that she's supposed to be even her, like, late 20s, early 30s, like, I don't know anyone, and I that's my age, like, I don't know anyone who would wear that. I'm going to be totally honest. When she entered, like, top like top of show, this is Lisa Howard's first entrance, and she was talking to her fiancé. I genuinely thought she was his mother until they started making out. And, ooh, that was a moment for me. Just because they were just dressed so dissimilarly, given the fact oh. that they're supposed to be the same age. Oh, God. Thank you. Yes. Wow. With that in mind, how many monkeys out of ten playbills would you rate this design? Like a five, probably. Maybe push it to a five and a half because I didn't realize the tan lines were a thing. And I think that's a really nice, clever little thing. I'm going to say I'm going to say five as well. I was ready to rate it higher, but both your um, the extensive discussion about the shoes, which is <laughs> something I no, but this is, I know, this is something I know. I've never really thought I've never really thought about before. But I've heard a lot of colleagues I respect give a lot of time and energy to the shoes the characters are wearing. And it's really important, even mm-hmm. though it's something that I don't notice personally. Yeah. Between that and the very valid comments about um, the way that um, Lisa Howard is costumed throughout this show, mm-hmm. let's go five. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay, let's talk about the performances, though. Lisa Howard and Alison Luff might have two of my... I, I feel like I say this especially about the um, women or the AFAB uh, people that we talk about on this show. 
they might have two of the best voices. Oh, yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. They sound great. Oh, my God. They're perfect. Vocally perfect to me. I didn't realize I'd been a fan of Lisa Howard since I was a kid growing up on the original Spelling Bee cast. I know. She's absurd in that, in Spelling Bee. Oh, she's incredible. Wow. I've, I've tried to be like her vocally for my whole life. It's such a healthy yeah. sound she's got. It's so oh, it's sustainable. Sound. Like, she'll work for her whole life. Yeah. Uh, and do good work. She does great work in this. Yeah. Like, I think I mentioned her and um, and Brick are my favorite parts of the yes. show by far. Um, he sounds great as well. He's had a great career stepping into tracks, like stepping into Shrek. Oh, I could see that. He would be remarkable in that role. This is Eric Peterson we're talking about. Um, stepped into Dewey in School of Rock. That makes good sense as well. Right. Absolutely. Um, stepped into Peter in the Starcatcher. And now this is his first um, originating. Oh, yeah, I'm a fan. I would I would go so far as to say Eric Peterson is my favorite part of this show. Ooh. I think he's charming. I think there's this bit at the end of Act 1 where he keeps on pulling up his shirt because he got <laughs> Tammy's face tattooed on his stomach. Oh and I think God. it's so cute. Just the, the so earnestness. Funny. He's always pulling up his shirt, like, like, showing so everyone he's got her freaking... Oh, so and then he keeps on, like, scratching his tummy and wincing because it hurts because he just got it tattooed. Oh, my God. I think it's really cute. Yeah, it's pretty pretty darn cute. Okay, I really like Alison Luff, like, so much. Yeah. I think her, like, performance overall is fine, but I don't think that's her fault. I think it's the way the character's written. So, yeah, I think she did everything she could. What I do want to call attention to is the fact that in It's My Job, at the end of the song, she gets on a bicycle while she's singing and pedals off stage. Independent from a track, by the way. She's not hooked up to a track, so she actually has to ride her bicycle and does not miss a beat. Like... It was so perfect. It, did, it didn't sound like she was on a bike at all. On that note, in a similar vein, because this cast, this is a hard-working cast. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Nolan plays guitar throughout the show, plays guitar really well. <sighs> really well. He's a really, um, a really competent guitar player, playing at a high level, and that's fantastic. He's from Saskatchewan. Did you know that, Paul? I did know that, absolutely. Him and me and the Taylor brothers, we're all one big happy family, <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Oh, yeah! <laughs> all the farmers. So... Kudos to that for yeah. the cast working working their asses off. To be honest, there's no one I dislike. Oh, I agree. I liked that there were lots of different um, body types on stage in the ensemble. Yep. I don't know if you noticed. I did. I was so excited that like there were like fat people dancing. That made me Hell happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially because this is a, a resort town. There's, I mean, this is yeah. important for two reasons. One, it's important because we want to celebrate tappiness and creating art at... Um, at um at all sizes and weights, that's super important. Yep. And also, we're portraying people on vacation. Totally. It's not just super skinny people who go on vacation. Bingo. It actually looks like a resort you would go to. Exactly. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yes, and that's how it should be. That's really how it should be. So I was very pleased with that. Absolutely. So I have a comment from the review. Yes. From the New York Times where Jesse Green writes, quote, If the show nevertheless feels basically genial, it's a tribute to the cast, which is scarily comfortable selling this hooey. Is there nothing Broadway performers can't do or won't do? I'd like to address that, please. I would too. Can we talk about that? There is absolutely nothing Broadway performers can't do. Theater performers in general are some of the most resilient, flexible, excellent artists I've worked with in my life. And is there anything they won't do? I don't know. Let's start publicly funding the arts again. Yeah. And then we'll find out. For now, we're just trying to pay rent. Well, that's just it. And it's sort of like, 
who gave you the opportunity, reviewer, to sit there and tell me that what I'm doing doesn't have some value to somebody, you know? It doesn't matter if it's nothing to do with, like, how you as an individual perceive it. Someone will will see it and love it. Well, and at the very least, it has value to someone because it has value to ensemble member number three who paid rent this month and totally. bought groceries and had enough money to live a nice life. Ugh, God. <laughs> and also it implies that, like, we don't say no to anything, which, yeah. like, is such a... That's a frustrating thing, I think, like, in terms of, like, being an artist, it's like you're sort of taught to take every job, especially when you're first starting out, because you can't be picky, right? But at the same time, it's like you shouldn't actually be put in a position where you can't say no. Like, you should be able to set boundaries and limits. Fuck us for making the choice that something fluffy is something that we can live with. You know what I mean? Yeah, get off your high horse, Jesse Green. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you give these performances? I give them an eight, so that's a seven with an extra understudy playbill because I want to give an especial shout out to Andre Ward, who plays oh, Jamal, yes. who's a very minor character, who's like the, um, as I mentioned, the maitre d', who just kind of bounces in and out of the um, resort, making sassy comments every now and then and sarcastic comments every now and again. And he is unstoppably funny. He also seems to be the only character who's like logical. And it's it's nice. <laughs> I want to follow Jamal's story throughout yeah. all of it. I want Margaritaville 2, Return of Jamal. I would just like to add a, a second understudy slip for looking the audience of Escape to Margaritaville dead in the eye and commenting that this seemed like the kind of thing white people would like. <laughs> I would like to give him all of the understudy oh, slip yeah. for that moment and that moment specifically <laughs> with the dead-eyed yeah. stare. No, I was, it, mwah, mwah, chef's kiss. So beautiful. So right. Love it. Love it. I'm at an eight for performances. Is it Tony time? I think so. What was going on in 2018? Ooh, welcome to the 2018 Tony Awards, June 10th. (gasps) That's today. Exactly three years ago. Look at that. Three years ago today, I'm in a basement apartment in Halifax watching these Tony Awards. Three years ago today, I'm somewhere... Maybe teaching, maybe working. Might have might have been working on something. Three years ago, I was rehearsing a Fringe Festival production with dear friend of the podcast, Wes Rambo, <gasps> oh, and right. Simon Miron, oh, and a bunch of other beautiful people. If any of you are listening right now, I love you all. Hi, hope you're doing well. That's oh, I great. saw that show. Okay. Oh my God. Yes, I do remember. What were you doing in 2018? I was gearing up for Breaking Up is Hard to Do. I, yeah. How did I forget? That was such Aww. a lovely time. Aw. And what's ha- so what's happening in the Tonys? We're all having really nice times in our career. Yes. I'd say really like big, significant career moments for all of us personally. So we uh, the Tonys are at Radio City. Curtain opens and Sarah Bareilles and Josh Groban come forward. That's <laughs> to host, right. <laughs> to co-host this Tony Awards. We have shows represented such as Mean Girls. We've got Frozen. Yep. We've got SpongeBob. We've got The Band's Visit. Oh, yeah. We have the revivals for My Fair Lady and the amazing Once on This Island revival. We're all happening. And then there were a bunch of really amazing plays at this time, too. Like, it was just a a wonderfully busy uh, year for Broadway, or season, rather. Was this the Angels in America that had started in the UK was up? It was. Andrew Garfield as Pryor and Nathan Lane as um, Raccoon. Oh. oh, so yeah, it was busy, busy Tony year. 
I mean, there was some really amazing, like, innovative stuff happening at that time. Band's Visit is really nice. Yes. So Band's Visit took the Tony, actually several, like 10 Tonys. How did Mar- in this incredible Tony year, where did Margaritaville lie? <laughs> they got zero nominations. Oh, no. And so therefore, like, did not perform. Okay, do you want to hear the travesty of, of the 2018 Tonys, though? Yeah. So Mean Girls was nominated for 12 awards. Yeah. They won zero. Oh. And I believe that's like the third most noms with no wins. Because weren't we talking about Scottsboro Boys being nominated for like 14 and they didn't win any? Oh, yeah. And then Steel Pier was like the same. And then Mean Girls. It would have probably been still running. 830 performances before closing. They did just fine for themselves. That was the 2018 Tonys. Very interesting. One of the last Tonys um, we ever saw before the 12-hour spectacular that we're going to have to champ through this September. That we get to champ through this September. Yes, there you go. (laughs) What a gift. Yeah, we're thinking of doing like a live watch-along. Would you like that? Also get in touch. Would you do a live watch-along with us? We could like set up like a live chat. We could all chat while we're watching it. That'd be amazing. This might be the most difficult show we've had to decide this on. Should Margaritaville be a musical? I don't think so. I think the potential for a musical featuring Jimmy Buffett songs exists. And I didn't think that going into this musical, so there you go. The fact that there is this plot is just a slice of life things that happened, and there's barely any conflict. I I have trouble justifying why this musical exists. Right. You don't have to have world-ending stakes in a jukebox musical. Mamma Mia is the example of this. Mm-hmm. But you gotta have some stakes. Something's gotta happen. Yep. Am I right that you agree this wouldn't be a musical for you? Yeah, I agree. I would actually pay money to see it at my resort. Like if I'm, yeah, if I'm going to Jamaica, I am going to want to see Margaritaville. Speaking of that, there's one last thing I just want to make sure to have mentioned on this podcast. I found it very fascinating. This musical really embraces the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle as far as drinking and relaxing on the beach and all but erases his marijuana enthusiasm. Right, that's right. Jimmy Buffett is a is a very strong advocate for um, recreational use of marijuana as well as alcohol. It's okay, you can say he's a big stoner. He's an enormous stoner. <laughs> he's a big stoner. <laughs> I say that as a big stoner. He's a big yeah. stoner. <laughs> and it was actually, it was kind of surprising to me to not yeah. have that represented at all because I associate that so much with the Jimmy Buffett vibe. And I guess it's because it's illegal in New York. Yeah, I don't know. I I couldn't say. But if we did a production here, there would be tons of Well, you'd have to assume it. The guy's got like a brand. He's a proprietary (laughs) brand of marijuana he sells. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yes, totally. Um, So we both agree. Yep. Doesn't need to be a musical. But that said, is this a flop? Is this a secret bop? Or do we need to make it stop? Flop for me. Because again, I don't think we need to like make it stop. Like I really enjoy the music. And... I, again, would see it in a resort, but maybe that means that I just like the music. Like, maybe I just want to be at a Jimmy Buffett concert, you know? Well, this is this is exactly <laughs> Maybe it. that's like, really what it is. Like, maybe even less plot, you know what I mean? Just yeah. actually make this, either go more and actually make it a musical, mm-hmm. or go less and make it, like, a review show. Yeah. I'm down for a review show of this, but yeah. So I'm inclined to, I'm inclined to agree. I'd say flop. With some elements even bordering on make it stop. Yeah. We don't need fat phobic bullshit in, 20, uh, in 2021. Yeah. We can be better. Oh, yeah. And also a bit of bop in there. Wow, this is our most, oh, right? Because the music's a total bop. Song. 
Son of a son. It's Absolutely. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, so we're a bit divided. Yeah, there we go. Who knew Margaritaville, the most controversial show we've ever covered? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was really fun. As you may have noticed, we're in lockdown number three in Manitoba, and we're feeling the lack of social interaction. Oh, God, are we It's just nice to talk to someone and talk to a dear friend. Please rate, review, subscribe. Most importantly, please drink margaritas or a drink of your choice Mm -hmm. and send us pictures Just because it'll make us happy to see people enjoying this show. It would be so cool. Um, Feel free to send a lot of messages, opinions. You don't even have to agree with us. Did you think Margaritaville's great? Tell us. Yeah. I'll receive that. I'll take that. Please join us next week when we're going to be joined by a very special guest. Oh, one of our favorite people. A person whose bright light has been shining throughout Canada these days. She's Mm -hmm. just a a force for light and good and awesomeness. It's Julie Lumsden, y'all. Hey, Jay Lums. And we're going to talk about chess. Join us then. We'll see y'all then. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul DeGers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on... Chess.